I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. And one last time, I'll put in that plug for the handout. Uh, so if you don't have one of those, you might want to grab one of those right now. You can go during all the commotion and come back and be a part of uh, the service here with us. Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. As you turn there, I'm going to give you a little bit more background information than I normally do um, in a sermon, and that's for a few reasons. Uh, it's because I don't believe that many believers know much about this chapter, nor perhaps about the book of Isaiah itself, and uh, that might be understandable because of its size, it's massive, and because of the challenging prophetic content that is in the book. I've spent the last several weeks reading through Isaiah, knowing this sermon was coming, and next week's sermon as well. And I'll just say, I've been kind of get, you know, trying to get my mind around the 66 chapters of Isaiah. And uh, so I prepared this handout and some background information for you to, to bring us all up to speed. Uh, we'll consider, by way of background, a little bit about the prophet Isaiah and his book, uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God in the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of one other prophet, and it just so happens, by God's good and sovereign plan, we covered that prophet last week. That prophet is Micah. And so if you remember some of the historical situation that Micah addressed, Isaiah also addresses some of that same time. Um, he ministers uh, during the same time as Micah, although he himself is much older than Micah, and he ministers over a longer period of time, uh, probably over 50 years of length was his prophetic ministry. Uh, we know this because his prophetic ministry began the moment that he said to God, here am I, send me. Remember that? He sees a vision of the throne room of God. He sees a vision of God. There are seraphim. They have six wings. They're shouting, holy, holy, holy. And God says, whom shall I send and who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That's the call of Isaiah. That happens in Isaiah chapter 6. And that also happens in conjunction with the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so this is some of the information we can learn about the prophet Micah. He starts in the year of King Uzziah's death, and he ministers for 50 years. He likely dies in his 90s, at the hand of a wicked king of Judah by the name of Manasseh. According to both Jewish and Christian tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two by wicked King Manasseh. King Manasseh put him inside of either two boards or a hollowed-out tree and sawed him in half because his preaching was so convicting and challenging to him as an evil ruler in the land. Other than that, we don't know much about the personal life of Isaiah. We know he, he was the son of Amos, not Amos, Amos with a Z. We don't know anything else about Amos. He had a prophetess wife, and he had two sons with strange names. 
Uh, and you could read about the book of Isaiah to, to find that all out. Um, we don't know much about him, but God will use his message greatly. This is often how God works, right? He sheds the limelight on the message rather than the messenger, on the prophecy rather than on the prophet. That's because we, as human beings, come and go. We're like grass that withers. We're like a flower that fades, to borrow the words of Isaiah the prophet. But God is always unchanging forever and ever. God in his grace more recently has given to us um, a man that he has used for his own honor and glory, Pastor Keith Davey, who passed away this past week. God used Pastor Davey to establish BBN, Bible Broadcasting Network, to start missions to military and to plant this church, Colonial Baptist Church, I think over 40 years ago now, but Pastor Keith would be the first one to tell you all glory goes to God. It goes to God. This is what he told us over and over again, didn't he? We are on the winning side, right? And he would emphasize not the we, but the winning side. Pastor Keith is in a much better place. We pray for those of us who remain as we mourn his loss and try to be faithful to our Lord. And so God used the prophet Isaiah, although we don't know much about his personal life. And uh, his work continues through his book. The book of Isaiah also demands some, uh, some brief attention. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters in length. It is the longest one of the longest books in the Bible, some people call it a mini-Bible in itself, 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible. It's been called by some the Paul of the Old Testament because of its significance and importance to Christian theology. Now, the book of Isaiah contains uh, God's grand vision for Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, not only for them, but it expands to see God's vision for the people of God and God's vision for all the nations. Maybe that's why it's so long when you're trying to capture God's grand vision for Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, and all the nations. It will require much length. The book of Isaiah comes in two major sections. And if you've got a handout, I put these in a, a box on the front as a means of encouraging you to study the book of Isaiah this week as you prepare for us celebrating the birth of Jesus. The first half is chapters 1 through 39, and they contain a message uh, of warning and judgment addressed to, and uh, we're going to use a tough word here, right? But we're going to explain it. We're going to try to understand it. This is pre-exilic Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so chapters 1 through 39 come from the prophet Isaiah, who lives before the Babylonian exile, and he's writing and addressing Judah and Jerusalem well before they fall uh, to Babylon. 
They, like Isaiah, lived before the, the people would ultimately fall to Babylon and be taken away into captivity. Nevertheless, Isaiah keeps warning them and the nations about rebelling against God and worshiping and serving false gods. So when I think of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, I think warning and judgment. You can see this even in a brief outline that I sketched out here for you on your handout and on the PowerPoint. Uh, all throughout here are things like judgment oracles, where in chapters 13 through 23, God systematically goes through 12 nations and warns them that unless they repent, they will face the judgment of God. That is followed by other powerful texts like woe oracles, Isaiah chapter 28 through 33, where God issues six woes. Warning those who serve other gods or trust in other means of security like Egypt or false uh, alliances. I think the strongest words of warning in the first half come in a little section that scholars call the little apocalypse. And I just want to take you to verse to chapter 24 for a moment. You can keep your finger here. But look at chapter 24, and I'll just read to you some verses here in ch- chapters 24 through 27. There's this section about future end-time judgment that is coming upon the earth. And I'll just read it to you to see, so you can see how full of warning, devastation these first chapters are. Look at verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth, and he will make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants and it shall be as with the people so with the priest as with the slave so with his master as with the maid so with her mistress as with the buyer so with the seller as with the lender so with the borrower as with the creditor so with the debator the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the lord has spoken this word the earth, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Strong words of end-time judgment and condemnation. Look at verse 17 through the end. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are open and the foundation of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls. And will not rise again. On that day the Lord will punish the host of, the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison and after many days they'll be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. When I read through those chapters, I just think, strong. Can it get any stronger than the earth? The earth is shaking. It's tottering. 
It's twisted up when God comes to judge this world. This is the prophecy of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are a message of warning and judgment for pre-exilic Judah and Jerusalem. This week, you could take those seven little points here. And I encourage you to read through those chapters and see if you could write a paragraph describing this first section, a message of warning and judgment. I said a little bit more background information than normal. We're just about done. The second half of Isaiah is a message of comfort for God's people. Now this is where I part with many liberals who think that much later people were responsible for the authorship of Isaiah 40 through 66. They think that it would take a committee of well-informed Isianic scholars to write chapters 40 through 66. I think it took a man used by God through inspiration to write these words of prophecy. Now, one of the reasons they think Isaiah 40 through 66 must come from a different time period is because Isaiah gets so specific about future, some future predictions. For instance, in one section, he says that there is a man by the name of Cyrus that is going to come and deliver God's people from Babylonian exile. And he says that, according to my map, I think at least 150 years before Cyrus reigned. So to the liberal scholar, they say, there's no way he could be that specific. But I say, it's biblical prophecy inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Isaiah, in chapters 40 through 66, imagines a day in the future when God's people wake up in captivity in Babylon and thus gives these chapters of words or words of encouragement to them. So Isaiah addresses chapters 1 through 39 to Israel before the exile. When he's living, Isaiah's 40 through 66 are during the Babylonian exile and after it. Okay, we're almost done with my, you know, what, what's this, a seminary lesson? What is this? Okay, this background information. But uh, I, I want to just read to you how one person described this, and I, it, to me it just helps open up the book so we can make sense of chapter 42 here in a moment. Alec Motier said, Isaiah is totally pre-existing material and is made to serve pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic, and eschatological purposes. So Isaiah is writing before the exile, and he's encouraging people before the exile, chapters 1 through 39. In the exile, chapters 40 through 48. After the exile, and in the end times. Okay? So this is a message of comfort. Chapters 40 through 66 have three parts to them. Uh, For sake of time, I won't show you how we know this, but 
If you read the last verse of each one of these three parts of nine chapters, you will see the same warning again and again and again. The Lord says uh, a word of warning to the wicked. There are three parts, three sections of encouragement in the second half of this book about what will God about what God will do predominantly through Cyrus, chapters 40 through 48, and then through Jesus uh, in his first coming, chapters 49 through 57, and then through Christ and predominantly his second coming in chapters 58 through 66. And so you can see that I've given to these three parts in this half of the book, it's a message of comfort. God is comforting Judah and Jerusalem after and while they're in exile. He comforts them about deliverance from Babylonian exile, about deliverance from their sin, and about God's faithful servants becoming a blessing to the nations. You can study that on your own this week. Now, having said all of that, there are four specific places in the second half of the book of Isaiah, where we can find special resonances between God's prediction of a special anointed servant that's going to come and Jesus. If you have your notes, you can flip them over to the second page. And now we'll look at Isaiah chapter 42. These four servant passages about this anointed servant are found in parts of Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then chapters 52 and 53. I spent so much time in the introduction this week because I'm going to be speaking on another Isaiah passage next week, and we won't have to do an introduction there. Today we'll look at the first servant passage, or servant song, of the four, and next week we'll look at the, the last one in Isaiah 53. You might ask at this point why you should listen. Well, I would say this. These are the everlasting prophetic words of God through the prophet Isaiah about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who ministers and loves on us while we are weak. You need these words more than you need food today. I'm not going to interfere with your lunch, I don't think. Although, you know, I'm just getting into the chapter. I'm not going to interfere with your lunch. You need these words, though, more than food or drink. You need these words more than anything else, more than any game you'll watch today. I know God will use these words to encourage you. And so we look at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 starts with an address from God to Israel, or Judah, about the nature of his faithful servant that's going to come. You can put a quotation marks around verses 1 through 4 in your Bible. These all come from God and their words uh, to Israel or Judah about this anointed servant. Um, let's look at verse 1 uh, to begin. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice 
or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is uh, my first point, uh, the nature of the Lord's servant. I think we can learn a lot about this anointed servant that God is going to send for his people. As we start into this, we come to a very significant question right at the beginning of verse 1, and that is, who is the servant, the Lord's servant in this passage? Who is Yahweh's servant? And believe it or not, there is not consensus on this question. Some people believe that my servant is in reference to corporate Israel, and they have good reasons for that. In chapter 41, Israel as a nation is called my servant, and later on in chapter 42, we're going to learn about an unfaithful servant of Yahweh, and that's corporate Israel. But as we're looking at verses 1 through 9 today, we ask, when has Israel been as faithful as what's being described in this servant? This is not corporate Israel. Others suggest that this is in reference to Cyrus, King Cyrus, who will come because he's listed in a later section as being a servant of God who accomplishes God's purpose on behalf of his people. Still others say, no, it's someone like David. David's called my servant in Isaiah or Moses or Isaiah himself uh, or uh, Jacob. They're all called my servant in the book of Isaiah. Yet, Uh, Here, I think there's a New Testament text that can help us know who this servant is. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 12, and I want to read to you verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them and all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I choose, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, or Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And his name the Gentiles will hope. All right, so that like settles it for me. I don't know about you. This is Jesus. Right? This is, this servant is Jesus. Now, we look a little bit more closely at his nature as described here, and I see seven characteristics of Jesus, or the anointed servant that's described in this passage. The first description of him is he is upheld by God. He's upheld by God in verse one. God supports, grasps, or upholds him. It seems to me that God holds him to sustain him so that this anointed servant will accomplish God's purposes and protect, and and God will protect him. This is how the servant will accomplish God's purposes. Uh, Do you realize this is how Jesus lived in this world? Sometimes we think of Jesus as like, the, and he is, the powerful son of God. Right, the eternal Son of God. But how he conducted his life and ministry in this world is one where he submitted to the will of the Father and he depended upon the Father's enablement in his life and ministry. 
the Son of God, lived in human flesh as we do. I like how one man said, described this to me when I was in seminary. He said, Jesus did not live on the prerogatives uh, of his own deity, but on the provisions of his Father. Jesus did not live by the prerogatives of his own deity, but on the provision of his own Father. This text says he was upheld by God. All right, I think in many of the same ways we are upheld by God. Second characteristic, just keep going in verse 1 there. He is also chosen. He's the chosen one. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God has many servants. We've listed some of them. Imagine uh, someone uh, who had many servants, maybe 30 or 40 of them. I'm sure if you had 30 or 40 servants, you might have one that sticks out, one that's your favorite. All right, and this is the only description. He's the only servant that's described in this way. He is the chosen one, the special servant of Yahweh. Third description uh, is that God delights in him. This anointed servant is the one in whom God's soul delights. I love that. The word soul is a word that if you come to, you've been coming to our Wednesday night equip classes on anthropology, taught by Dr. Leonard, you know a little bit more about now. There's a way to talk about human beings to describe what we are as a combination of material and immaterial. The material is our body. When you're talking about the immaterial part of us, right, you could be, uh, you could talk about it and describe all the different immaterial parts that we can think of, the spirit of a human being, the soul, the mind, the conscience, the heart. But another way of talking about that internal part of us, our inner being, is to use the word soul. All of what we are internally is our soul. Now, when that's applied to God, it's a metaphor. It's a very powerful metaphor to describe that God truly delights. He takes pleasure in this special anointed servant. It reminds me of what God said about Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember what he said? This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. Isn't this stirring here? To see God the Father, I think, Yahweh talking about the one he truly takes pleasure in. The anointed servant. Next, God's spirit rests on him. In the middle of verse 1, God has put his spirit upon this servant. This speaks of an empowerment. When the Spirit is put on someone in the Old Testament, it's usually a king or a priest or a prophet who's given some task by God. And so it seems here that this speaks of the empowerment of God's anointed servant. He will have God's Spirit resting on him to enable him. It reminds me of what he says about the branch in Isaiah 11. Just turn there for a second. Because he uses the same language and he describes it a little bit more fully. Here we're not talking about the servant. We're talking about the branch that comes forth out of the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse. I think this is Jesus as well. But look at verse 1. There shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so regarding this servant, God's spirit, his Holy Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and counsel will rest upon him. There are a whole host of New Testament passages that reveal to us that in his human flesh, Jesus relied upon the Spirit of God to enable him time and time and time again. That's the fourth characteristic of this servant. You can go back to chapter 42. The fifth characteristic of Yahweh's servant is the leading one in the whole paragraph. It is that he will bring forth justice to the nations. The word justice is used three times in verses 1 through 4 to bring emphasis. When this one comes, so too will justice. The word justice speaks of the just order that this servant will establish. Yahweh's servant will proclaim and establish Yahweh's decisions and policies in this world. He would minister justice for the nations. Today and throughout our human existence, no human government or administration has ever been able to do this perfectly. Yet there's coming a day when one will. He will reign and rule and establish justice for all people. Then, number six, we learn that he will do this, establish justice for all people in gentleness. And this is how I take verses 2 and 3. I want to look at verses 2 and 3 with you and show you a few different pictures of gentleness. Uh, Look again at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I think there are pictures of gentleness that fall into two groups. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud, lift up his voice, or make his voice heard in the streets. When this servant of Yahweh comes, he will not try to make a name for himself or come trumpeting his own importance. No, this one will come quietly and with modesty. He will not come seeking publicity. He will not come making demands. This ruler will not be domineering. Which I think is in direct contrast to the ruler he's going to talk about in the next few chapters, Cyrus. You know, the powerful king of Persia who's going to help Israel. Cyrus loved open displays of his glamour and his royal pomp. This servant, however, is quiet and unaggressive and unthreatening. You see, he's gentle. I also see this in verse 3 when it says that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. This speaks of his demeanor and his value system. Others might crush the weak or broken, not this one. He's so kind that when he sees a bent over and cracked reed, he won't break it off. 
The lowly burning wick is symbolic of someone who's suffering great pain and personal suffering with this servant. When this servant sees someone broken and discarded, he will take their pain upon himself and he will give them grace. That is, he is gentle with the weak and the broken. He is not a brute. That's not the kind of leader he is. He is gentle. Finally, also in verse 4, we learn that he will accomplish God's purposes. Look at verse 4 again. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The first part of this verse could be translated, and pay close attention here at the beginning of verse 4. could be translated, he will not smolder or be bruised. And so what God does is he takes the same two words that were used of the weak and the lowly, those who are broken, and he uses it concerning this anointed servant. And he does so, I think, to explain or to reveal to us that he himself will experience some of the same brokenness that we we do. But for him, this won't happen until he's accomplished it. Until he's able to bring forth justice as he's called to do. And so... The point of verse 4, I think, is, is this, that weakness and fragility will not overtake him until he is able to finish the job that God has given to him. I can't help when I read these verses, but think of what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. He accomplished it. And then he experiences the brokenness, the smoldering, the bruising that's described here, so that the effect is even the remotest of all people, those out in the coastlands, in the far islands from Judah and Jerusalem get to experience his law. What a servant. He was upheld by God. Chosen one. The object of God's delight. God's spirit rests on him. And he brings forth justice to the nations. And although he is gentle, so gentle that he would never crush any hurting person, he will accomplish all God's purposes. All of this reminds me of a song, a new song that I've heard recently about Jesus. And although I only have about five minutes left in my sermon left, I'm going to have the worship team come, and they're going to play this song for us. I'm coming back, okay, so don't, don't, don't give up. Leave your Bibles open to Isaiah 42. But we're going to sing a song. If you know it, you can sing it with them. It's Jesus, Strong and Kind. I'm reading through this passage. I couldn't help but think of this song. And so if you know this, you can sing along with them. said that if I thirst I should come to him no one else can satisfy I should come to him Jesus said that if I am weak 
I should come to Him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to Him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to Him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to Him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Together. Jesus said I am lost, he will come to me, and he showed me on that cross, he will come to me, for the Lord is good and faithful, he will keep us day. strong and sing that again for the Lord is good and faithful he will keep us day and night we can always run to Jesus Jesus strong and All right, how many of you, that was the first time you sang that song or listened to it? That's a great song. I encourage you to, to, to find it uh, and to sing it. That's the nature of Jesus. That's the nature of Jesus. Perhaps you're a bruised reed today. You're a wick. And the light feels like it's just about ready to go out. You should go to Jesus. He's strong and he's kind. That's his nature. The rest of this chapter, and uh, for the sake of our instrumentalists here, we'll go quickly. The mission of the Lord, verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9, there's a transition. And here in verse 5, Isaiah describes God who's speaking, and then God speaks in verses 6 through 9. And a key here is, I think, verses 6 through 9 are addressed to the servant, and Israel and Judah get to hear. Okay, and so let me read these verses. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Just a few thoughts. First, this passage starts with a long description of God. doesn't just say, and the Lord said. He is the one who stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth. This takes this text the whole way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 through 3, where God created the world. I think it might also remind the reader of Isaiah 40, where it talked about the incomparable God who can hold the waters in the hall of his hand, who can mete out the heavens with the span of his hand. He also, this God, gives breath and spirit to weak and lowly human beings. That might remind us of Isaiah 40 as well when he described human beings as withering grass and as fading flowers. But from this God, he he says a few things to the servant in verses 6 through 9. He first says that he will take this servant by the hand and keep him. He will also give this servant, and this gets to his mission, he will give this servant as a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Somehow, some way, this servant will be the means through which people come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. And thinking ahead of Jesus, I can't help but think of the communion passage that we read every month where Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He will be the means of the new covenant for his people. And he will bring light for the nations. Consider what Paul says about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with yourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? Jesus Christ. And so through him, Jesus, will come light to the nations. He's the means by which these things are accomplished so that God's glory will be given to no other person. Verse 8, I think, is building off of chapter 41. In chapter 41, just a chapter before this, God taunts idols and metal images. He tells idols to expound on the meaning of things. And in verse 22, 41-22, he calls them expounding on the meaning of things, telling of former things. 
And then he challenges idols to declare the things that will happen. And in verse 22, the things to come. Yet these idols can do none of that. Not so for God. God speaks. He explains what has happened. And here in this passage, he tells us what will ultimately happen when he sends his special faithful servant. This is the mission of Jesus, verses 5 through 9. This is our Savior. He is kind yet strong, and he accomplishes the mission of God.